The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Peloton Prisoner Edition. It's Wednesday, December 18th, 2019. On today's show, it's that time of year again. Yes, Slate has its various end-of-year clubs posting. Uh, we discussed this year's provocative TV club with Willa Paskin. Slate's, of course, a wonderful TV critic. And then 25 years after its initial release, Mariah Carey's incorrigible holiday earworm, All I Want for Christmas, is finally the number one hit on the Billboard charts. We will be joined by Chris Malampi to explain why and maybe something about uh, its wicked charms. And finally, WTF is up with that Peloton ad that has gone viral. Joining me today is Julia Turner, who is the Deputy Managing Editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And uh, Dana Stevens, who's Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. Okay, it's that time of year again where uh, Slate posts up its various clubs, its TV club, its movie club. These are both um, top 10 list kind of deals, but really uh, they're more state of the medium um, essays by the top critics in the field. We're joined now by Willa Paskin to talk about the TV club. Willa, welcome back to the show. Hi. Willa, what I love about your um, about your initial entry is, um, is how frankly you talk about the state of the medium as uh, something that you now find at, at the very least something to be ambivalent about. I mean, I'll quote what amounts to almost your very first line. 2019 was the first year I started to look askance at something I've said a thousands of times. I love television. Are we coming to the end of a golden age or are we just starting to look at it somewhat differently? Well, I have no idea if we're doing either of those things. I would like us to be looking at television a little differently. Should I give my whole like spiel? Because I yes, have a please. whole spiel. It's <laughs> such a strong opening post to Movie Club, Willa. It? It's so polemical. And I really want you to frame it right now for the okay, listeners. Sure. So basically, I, in the last 20 years, like TV critics, not just TV critics, but mostly TV critics, have been engaged in this like project to sort of like get TV taken seriously, to get it respect, to like jump a brow, to make it serious and um we've been like insanely <laughs> successful uh, obviously like it started sort of in the late in 1999 when sopranos premiered you can sort of argue about like the actual first show but or, starting around that time everyone was like hey like look tv is better it's different we like this golden age of television is upon us and obviously tv had sort of historically been taking incredibly unseriously. It was the idiot box. It was the boob tube. It was really easy to be snobby about it. It was very popular, but it was, you know, lowbrow, just like trashy. And actually, genuinely, much of it was not very good. Um, and so, like, there was a sort of groundswell of attention and, uh, like, you know, on all the art or the entertainment that was being made. And now, I think, like, 20 years later, like, we have been just, like, we are, we've been so successful in this um mission to get TV taken seriously. Like, there are obviously people who do not like television still, but they are in the minority. TV is beloved and respected everywhere. It's written about everywhere. It is like the medium of our time. You have these huge corporations that are making television, both because it's financially, uh, there's a lot of financial incentives for them to do so, but also like it's cool and hip and chic enough that that makes them seem cool and hip and chic too. Um, and, and obviously to make that happen, we, fans, viewers, makers, but critics also, have had to have sort of like an activist position about television. We were like trying to accomplish something. So we were kind of like fans of television. We were like homers for television. We were trying to make something happen. We were cheerleading for it. And and I just think that now, at this moment, we're like, we have 
become sort of like the overdogs. Like, you know, TV was sort of in historically um, always very powerful, always very popular, always very lucrative, but it was artistically disrespected. So in that one way, it was kind of an underdog. And now it's not even that. So it's really just an overdog many times over. I think it's sort of incumbent upon us to like think about our relationship to television maybe a little bit differently and to think about this sort of fanish relationship, this like I love television attitude to sort of just think about it in a little more complicatedly. And like what I, I really mean when I say that is like The Sopranos starts in 1999. In 2001, so two years later, you have with 9-11 basically the rise of Fox News as a total alt-right project. And so basically you have around the same time period that we're like all talking about how great television and fixating on it. You have the weaponization of cable news. And then you also have the premiere of Survivor, which like leads directly to The Apprentice and Donald Trump. So basically, it's like while we've been talking about how great TV is artistically, you have almost like the best example we've ever had of how TV can be so powerful and insidious. And I think that, you know, you could say to me, well, that's actually like, let's divide those things, right? There's TV that's art, there's the fictional TV, there's scripted mm-hmm. dramas and comedies right. and documentaries, and there's all this other stuff. And that other stuff is its whole old kettle of fish. But I actually think when you do that, you sort of fall into this funny, ironic trap, which is that part of the other argument that's happening about television is like, we don't want to treat it like cinema or literature. It's its own art form, right? We don't need to compare The Wire to Dickens indefinitely. Like, it can be its own thing. But this to me is almost like the most cinema and literaturizing of all of television because the thing that's really unique about television i think is how immensely powerful it is and how immensely powerful it is even when it's horrible like how much it's so sticky and it's so meaningful to us when it's good but also when it's bad and like we need to really like get there with that (laughs) i mean i love your entry and i love this argument but let me drill down on it just for one second yeah Is, is it just that the word television no longer is um semantically precise enough to describe all of the things that that it purports to encompass right that that you know if i have a laptop and i'm streaming and netflix is the provider and the studio is some you know is annapurna or or the bbc in what sense is that even connected to what's happening on fox news it's no longer the same device it's no longer the same delivery system it's no longer the same production system it may not be one of the big six entertainment conglomerates that produced it uh, or they may have some finger in it but but not directly i guess what i'm really asking is is it that this cheerleading for the artistic viability of the medium has so overwhelmed this older doomsaying sociology about the effects of tv that we need a corrective for that or is it that the streaming bubble is you know has kind of reached the peak of its bubble phase and actually the quality of the best shows don't live up anymore to the golden age you know rhetoric well so i I think there's a couple things i think basically both of those things are sort of true i but i think that in not in sort of not thinking about tv a little more holistically we're leaving a lot of questions on the table right so like what does it mean that television now has as like on most many platforms is completely disconnected from news that we have taken news out of the where tons of people watch television maybe that's totally meaningless but maybe it also means people want more entertainment from their news or maybe it means 
you know, they're getting news not from television. I, I just there's like there's sort of there's ramifications for like the changing way that TV if if TV suddenly is just this thing that is also indistinguishable from films in lots of ways or indistinguishable from all these other formats. It's just like you turn on Netflix and you get your stuff on screen. Like that's a huge change. And it, it may mean that TV, as I'm talking about it, is sort of this vestigial old timey thing and not very long. But like that change is happening now. And I think in not thinking a little bit more about the ways those things used to be connected um, because it's sort of convenient to just thinking about what's good. We're actually like missing a lot of what is transforming like right in front of our eyes, if that makes sense. And I, and I do also think that sort of part of the golden age rhetoric has been just strictly with the artistic stuff kind of, um, I do think a little bit over crazy, like just this is this is not particular to television, but we are obviously living in a extremely optimistic moment. I think it's not so crazy to imagine that basically in the last two decades, as genuinely popular mass culture has sort of disappeared, we have become like much more enamored in the moments that of the things that really are hugely popular and that, you know, in the 70s. You defined yourself against what was popular because you saw it and you saw it was bad and how many lame people liked really bad things. And that doesn't happen anymore. Like, there's just so much less of it. Those things all seem extremely good. Like, so much, like, we're just, it's so rare. It's sort of exciting. It has this frisson that, like, a really popular thing couldn't have had before. Um, And TV fits just like, to me, that's germane to, like, what's happening with television in general. So that you get to this place that's also sort of, like, it's very aligned with sort of fan culture, where instead of just saying, like, I love this show, and I think it's, like, fine, maybe. Like, having the thing where you're like, I love this thing. It's not even a guilty pleasure, but it's not perfect. This is, uh, I wrote a piece about The Morning Show that's, like, all about this. Not everything that you like has to change the world. Not everything that you like has to be, like, the best or hyperbolic. I mean, this also might have to do with, like, headlines in the internet age. I mean, there's lots of things that are going on. I do. So yes, I think this is about both of those things. I think it's about TV uh, sort of changing and some to being some sort of other third thing that it's not yet. And so separating um, from sort of TV as we knew it. And I do think it's also about TV maybe not being like the scripted stuff or the artsy stuff not being quite as good as we're saying it is. Well, right. And then there's also the difference between popularity and the cultural conversation. Like there was a moment where the sort of people who like to lament that popular culture sucked didn't have any options besides whatever bad thing millions of people were watching. Uh, Millions of people are still watching a lot of mediocre television. Like (laughs) broadcast television remains a very strong, very good business. And like there's just not a lot of think pieces about the oppression of NCIS or whatever. But like it exists and people watch it. It's just that all of the prestige TV has distracted the TV erati. um, And so we don't even worry about it anymore. Yes. Like I I think one of the things that's happening here a little bit, this is – very narcissistic. But I, I came into TV criticism because I was like I was had been a major in anthropology in college and I was really interested. And I like and also because I loved 90210. So I always came into it from this place that was like, I love this bad stuff. Like what it's so interesting, like what's popular, like what it says about us, even when it's bad. And I think as TV has basically become a proper arts criticism in sort of like the very near past, it's very easy to be like, oh no, we're just talking about what's good. And I'm like, I think we should just be talking about what's interesting. And obviously, sometimes you run into a wall because you can't talk about NCIS because no one wants to read it. But like, there's a way that NCIS's ongoing popularity is like way more interesting than like whatever like m- perfectly well made like emo comedy that you know five hundred thousand people. What was the have very seen. forgettable one we saw about sex in Britain that was like delightful? Sex Education. 
Yeah, that maybe that one is got that to was my <laughs> that was my peak like surfeit of good TV show this year where I was just like I don't know it's good I just can't care about this <laughs> my God there were a whole bunch like in that, a row even that we talked about that were all about teenagers having sex in Britain it was sort of like that became a whole genre <laughs> to itself those are all very enjoyable but it's like it's just. I, like I just something's like off something's just off we just should it's like it's also like it's so overheated like there's just a way that some of these sort of older schools of criticism it's like not everything is like you're not like battling for movies you know so like you can just be like let's talk about this movie you know like and that does I sort of wish for TV to have that well right but also I mean the kind of homerism and boosterism that you lament in TV criticism I do think that there's a pivot moment where you know, the question in newsrooms of like, who's responsible for covering The Mandalorian? Is that the TV team or the film team? Who's responsible for covering all these things that are in the bubble? Like the, the big companies, the powerful companies are coming after us with TV. And so the kind of skepticism of the vigilant critic needs to get activated around TV. Meanwhile, you know, film buffs are just so happy when a good movie gets made. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're like, oh my God, thank God. Phew, it's not dead yet. Um, so I do wonder if we'll see sort of a shift in the ethos of the two branches of criticism I mean, there. I do also just like find the ongoing sort of like tiff, occasional tiff, not always between sort of film critics and TV critics to be like so like like missing the forest for like the giant asteroid that's coming to like smash the forest to smithereens, which is like both of these things are obviously becoming something that you watch whenever you want on your laptop. Obviously, that's more um, or, you know, who knows what. And obviously, that's sort of more um, actually uh, at odds with what we've understood as movies, as this experience that we have in a room together somewhere that's not in your house. Um, and then that way, TV might end up being the thing that it's all called. But like they obviously are smashing into each other. Um, and they're sort of, it seems to me they're most like becoming like more internet than sort of either of them. You know, we're actually starting writing the movie club this week to run next week. And my first post, I opened on exactly that question, which to me was a huge question this year that that emerged in a new way, right? The, the emerging of Netflix and Amazon is these two giants just out of the blue in movie distribution, I mean, you know, right. giants of, of movie producers and releasers. Um, so really, our jobs are kind of merging. You yeah, know? totally. It's, and, and also, like, this is sort of the most boring way to say this, but actually, like, probably um, will have, like, real ramifications because it's how people decide about things. But, you know, the, the moving from um, finding out how movies make money, like this obsession with box office, to actually being Netflix movies where literally you're never going to even know how many, like, you can't do it by money. Like, you can't even do it by audience. And I am curious to see, like, how that, if that changes, like, the market in a way that is helpful because it will make, you know, movies that aren't just about superheroes have, I mean, that's what seems to be happening on Netflix already. Right. I mean, it's going to come down to which of these you know, behemoths in the streaming wars has the IP that keeps people subscribing. I mean, it's just sort of this odd thing where that's the business model. That's the basis for the competition between these commercial entities. Um, you're simply trying to retain and expand a, a subscriber base um, thanks to a very large portfolio of original and um, and archival content. Um, anyway, Willa, let's pivot banali to the top <laughs> 10 aspect of this. Was this a good year for TV? And what, if so, what made it that? I thought it was actually like an okay year for TV. And I actually think there was probably like four truly excellent shows, which I think kind of like is a weird sign of health. Like I think my top four this year, which were Fleabag, Russian Doll, Watchmen, and Succession are like as good as a four 
as I've had on a top 10 list ever. And those were in all of the top 10 lists. Yeah. Pretty and it was, much, right? Right. And you saw a lot of um, similarity, which, you know, could be a sign that everything was bad, <laughs> but uh, else was bad. But I think actually is because those shows are just like extremely good. Um, and then and then it was like fine. It was good. I thought last year was maybe worse. I felt more like deadened by it. But like, it's just so ridiculous. There's 615 TV shows this year. Like um, some of them were good. Some of them were more than okay. <laughs> In relation to that, I wanted to ask you about the post that you wrote about uh, Unbelievable and yeah. fast forwarding through the tough parts and uh, and just talk about not just that show, but about different modalities of TV watching and what possibilities it opens up for the viewer and what those mean to you. Right. So Unbelievable is a show on Netflix based on a true story that also has turned into a Pulitzer Prize winning um, piece by ProPublica in which basically a young woman is um, raped by a home intruder and not believed by the police and like her life completely spirals out in horrible ways. And then meanwhile, a rapist is sort of raping people across many states and these two police officers solve the case and sort of connect the dots that um, it's the same rapist as raped this woman who throughout the show you're watching her life sort of be destroyed because no one believes her. Um, and I, st- I knew this story and I started to watch the show and the first episode is all about the young woman played by this actress, Caitlin Deaver. And I was like, no. I do not want to watch this at all. This is like really grim and depressing and really like just excruciating. So I skipped it and I kept skipping all her parts. And the part of the show that's left, which is a sort of a cop procedural starring Merritt Weaver and Tony Collette is like, you know, has some tough things. It's about rape investigations, but it's like a really good gripping, um, fun procedural. And I enjoyed it a lot. Um, and so I wrote about that sort of skipping stuff for TV club. I've always been a relentless fast forwarder. Um, I get bored with lots of storylines and things. I try not to do it when I'm writing about the show. Um, I think it also helps that I like basically know what's happening because I have watched enough stuff that I have good um, reading comprehension about television. But with this, I also did, it was sort of another secret way to be like nasty about TV. (laughs) You know, there's been a lot more in the coming years, like shows about really hard things, sort of um, TV kind of moving into some of the territory that some awards bait um, movies often cover where it's like some excruciating but noble subject and you should watch it because it's good for you and it is actually good for those stories to be out there in the world to know about them and I just wanted to kind of while it's saying that those things are true I think that those things are true I think we should be making shows and movies about difficult things I'm thinking now of like um, when they see us the Ava DuVernay show about the Central Park Five or um, Chernobyl or even Our Boys this Israeli show Um, like while I really think those shows should be being made. I also think that those shows are in a conversation with an egotistical part of ourselves that is can sort of self, you know, be satisfied and congratulated that we are willing to excruciate ourselves and put ourselves through the ringer of doing this really hard thing of watching a TV show. And I, you know, obviously watching a TV show is not really that hard. So I did in with Unbelievable, I decided to skip the hard stuff, which feels sort of like a cop out, but I also decided in skipping the hard stuff, I couldn't congratulate myself on being the kind of person who sits through the hard stuff. I mean, I read that in this state of kind of shock and admiration as a movie critic who really can't skip. <laughs> who It would really look bad for one thing because I'm only dealing with two hours in the first place, but also you're locked into a seat, you know. And at the same time, that's always what I've so in a way loved about theatrical projection of movies is that you are trapped, you know, the passivity yeah. of the of the viewer where you just whatever unscrolls in front of your eyes, you sort of have to take it in and make sense of it. But that post just as an operational manual for TV watching was was useful to me because it made me realize that there are lots of shows, for example, maybe even not because of the excruciatingness, but just because the A plot is so much better yeah. than the B plot or vice versa. There are plenty of shows that I might watch in that half their way. 
also, I mean, I like I'm very in touch with my bad viewer, I think. So like when I'm not reviewing something, there's like lots of shows I'll watch and I'll just be like, oh, I only want to know how this love story turns out. And I'll like watch two and then I'll just like shamelessly like fast forward through the last like four or five just to see like the like <laughs> watching like three minutes of every episode. And then I'll be like, I'll go back and watch. And I never do because like that's truly all I wanted to know that happened. This is not what things that I'm reviewing. But I just like think that there's a like that's a nice thing about TV. That's also obviously a horrible thing about TV that you can just chop it up and do whatever you want to it. I mean, this is why like Martin Scorsese would probably like have things to say about his movies being watched in this one particular way. Us turning the Irishman into a miniseries, um, which is so, what so many people are doing. What the people want you to get from what they're making is not always what you get. And TV just makes that can make that extremely clear. And I will say, like, you know, The Notebook, a movie that I've seen many times, I always fast forward the old people. I've made my own movie. It has its own cut and it has no old people Justice in it. Justice for Jenna Rollins. <laughs> no. I'm not going to watch the Alzheimer's plot of that movie. It's very bad. <laughs> There's somebody in the club, I can't remember which critic it is, and you can remind me, who talks about how she's always written about how TV is is the medium for, she says, I think, the sick, the exhausted, the, <laughs> the half asleep, right? I mean, yeah. the, it's, it's the medium that you consume in the privacy of your home and you can be who you are. You can have all of your flaws in relation to the medium in front of it if we're going to regard those as flaws from yeah. a Scorsesean <laughs> high perspective. Um, and that came very strongly across in your post, but also in general, I think, in this year's club, that there was a lot of talk about, you know, the watching body and its relation yeah. to the screen. Right. It's like TV can be really good. It can be art. And like also, I mean, in this way, it's like not that dissimilar from like porn or something, right? It's like between you and yourself, what you do alone on your computer with the internet on, you know? Oh, my Lord. <laughs> like, you know, like podcasting, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So the TV club is up. Uh, Willa has the initial entry and then there are others that follow. It's wonderful. Willa Paskin, of course, is Slate's TV critic and the host of um, Dakota Ring podcast. Uh, Willa, thanks for coming back on our show. Truly, thank you so much for having me. I just really want to like talk and fight with people about this and no one's doing it on the Internet. So maybe... Now I will get some. I hope listeners will read it and fight. It's so fun. (laughs) Thank you, guys. (laughs) Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, before we go any further, Dana, I'm going to guess that we have some business and uh, you're ready to deliver it. What's uh, what's up? Uh, just one piece of business, but it's an important one. Our call-in show, which is our annual celebration of our listeners and their weird questions, is happening next week. And so you have just a few more days to call in a question if you have one for us. Let's make Friday the last day so that we can spend the weekend looking at questions and deciding which ones we have time to answer on the show. The number to call to leave a voicemail with your question is 973-826-0318. That's 973-826-0318. Let's say until midnight on Friday, you can leave your message and uh, we will give it a listen and hopefully answer your question on next week's program. In Slate Plus today, we will be talking to Chris Melanfi, Slate's great pop music writer and chart analyst. He will be coming on in the main part of our show to talk about Mariah Carey's Christmas hit, All I Want for Christmas is You, which bizarrely has just hit number one on the pop charts 25 years after it was recorded. But we had him stick around for the Slate Plus segment to talk about his latest episode of Hit Parade, which is his great pop music podcast for Slate, which is all about 
songs of the 2010s. We will go through some of those with Chris and talk about why they've stuck around for a decade. Soaring vocals, Motown backbeat chimes, dripping in bathos and exuberance. It was 25 years ago that Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas Is You joined almost instantly the pantheon of pop rock holiday songs destined to be played to death between Thanksgiving and New Year's. But it never hit number one on the charts, at least until now. We are joined by resident chartologist uh, Chris Malamphy to discuss why. Chris, welcome back to the show. Hey, Steve. How are you? I'm great. I'm in the holiday spirit. Um, in that I never want to hear any of these songs ever, ever again. But <laughs> um, but this is kind of crazy. This is surely the longest a song has ever gone from its appearance to being at the top of the charts. Does that have something to do with the internet, by the way? It absolutely has something to do with the internet. It has to do with everything that has changed on the charts and in the music economy, the technological economy that makes uh all of our music consumption possible in the last quarter century since this song landed in the late fall of 1994. Um, basically, to chart the history of All I Want for Christmas is You, depending on how deep of a billboard nerd you are, and God knows I'm about as deep as they come, um, is kind of to track how consumption has changed, how technologies have changed. When this song appeared on the 1994 album simply titled Merry Christmas by Mariah Carey, Mariah was at the absolute zenith of her imperial phase. And here's the interesting part. They didn't release it as a single. They figured, well, it's a Christmas album. Christmas albums are perennials. They sell well. People will buy the whole thing, which they did, by the way. It went triple platinum in its first year and has sold another roughly three million copies since then. Um, and Mariah did not need any further hits. Uh, so they put it out as an album cut. They put it out as a music video. And they figured that would be that. Um, but then everything that's happened in the subsequent 25 years, whether it was Billboard changing its rules to allow album cuts to appear on the Hot 100, that didn't happen until the late 90s. The invention of the legal download when iTunes came online in 2003, by the way, within the first year that the legal 99 cent download existed, All I Want for Christmas is You was a top 10 digital download. So the minute people could buy this song, they did buy this song. Um, when Billboard decided late in the decade uh, to not only add digital music to its Hot 100, but eventually by the turn of the 10s, they made it possible for old songs to appear on the Hot 100 again. Basically, once Billboard and Nielsen Music realized that old songs and new songs kind of streamed in quantity side by side with each other and there was no point segregating old music from the chart anymore, they changed their policy and they started to allow old songs onto the chart. All of these changes and then throw into the mix in 2011-2012 the addition of Spotify to the charts. Spotify comes to America and now we know really with a fine-tooth comb which songs people are consuming in quantity every year. By the way, it turns out that songs like Burl Ives's A Holly Jolly Christmas and Andy Williams, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, and Wham's Last Christmas. These old songs turn out to be perennially popular. Brenda Lee's Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree. You add all of these changes in technology, changes in methodology, and bit by bit, it's a feedback loop. I've said this a million times. Charts are feedback loops. Once the industry learns what's popular, they make it more popular. And the public develops a realization that a song is popular. And so there's been this 
pardon the pun, with the winter, there's been this snowball effect for the last 25 years where little by little, as more data has been available to us, it's been easier to track. Oh, yeah, this is an incredibly popular song. It's enduring. People love it. If they have the opportunity to consume it every November and December, they will. And here we are in 2019, and in its 25th year, it sets a record as the longest gestating number one hit in Hot 100 history. So, yeah, long answer to your question, but it is definitely a phenomenon. Chris, I heard that you were called in to write an emergency. Why is this song number one about <laughs> All I Want for Christmas ascending to the top of the charts? And that's not out yet, but I, I can't wait to read it. I did read on Billboard that this is the first time this has happened since the Chipmunks song in 1958-59, which, first of all, topping the Chipmunks record of 60 years ago is a pretty incredible feat for Mariah Carey in itself. But if it really is true that all of these metrics of measuring what makes a song popular and who's listening to it where have changed so quickly— why hasn't this happened before? Is this going to start to be a, pro- a problem? <laughs> are there going to be, I mean, are old songs going to take over the charts? Not that that would necessarily be a problem, but is it going to become almost impossible to look at the charts as having anything to do with novelty anymore? Well, depending on how you view it, whether you view it as a problem or not, it's it's already happening. For example, this same week that Mariah Carey goes to number one with this 25-year-old record, a roughly 60-year-old record by Brenda Lee, Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, makes its first appearance in the top five. So right now, the Hot 100 is already awash in, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60-year-old records. So that's already happening. And again, the combination of streaming and Billboard deciding about seven, eight years ago that they were going to allow old records on the chart again because it just didn't make sense to segregate them anymore, those two things have already brought about this change. I have all year long been expecting that my December episode of Hit Parade was going to be about All I Want for Christmas is You because it's such an interesting chart phenomenon. And even if it had not gone to number one, just the story of how the chart rules change to make it possible for this song to climb the charts is a fascinating story. As for the chipmunks, yes, here's the the statistic. This is the first Christmas record in America of any kind to go to number one since the chipmunk song by David Seville, technically the credit read the chipmunks featuring David Seville in 1958, the very first year the Hot 100 existed. And two things. First of all, in 1958, what was really happening with the chipmunk song, this is the one that goes, you know, Christmas don't be late, I still want a hula hoop. It was basically jumping on a novelty record trend that was hot in 1958. Frankly, the chipmunks could have been singing about anything. It was following up records by David Seville like The Witch Doctor or um, The Purple People Eater by Sheb Woolley. 1958 just happened to be a really good year for novelty records. In effect, it's almost as if there's never been a pure Christmas record that has gone to number one. The chipmunks record half doesn't count. Um, And the reasons for this, basically, Christmas music is an odd fit for the charts. Everybody wants to hear it for roughly a four to six week period every year from about Thanksgiving to Christmas, and then they never want to hear it the rest of the year. And this is an awkward fit for a chart that tracks the accretion of hit status over the course of weeks and months. A typical number one hit will take at least a couple of weeks unless it debuts at number one. And then if it debuts at number one, it's probably going to stick around for months. But a typical hit record sticks around on the chart, not for three weeks or four weeks. It sticks around for months. So by the time a record is aggregating enough data to climb the chart, Christmas is already over. So you had this phenomenon where in the 60s, the 70s, either these records weren't released as singles, so they weren't eligible for the chart. Many of them were album cuts or they 
were released as singles, but then a song like, you know, Bobby Helms's uh, Jingle Bell Rock could barely get into the top 10 and Brenda Lee's Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree peaks at number 14 because it's just starting to climb the chart before the Christmas season is over and then it plummets off the Hot 100. Streaming and the technology available to us now basically give us a finer measure of just how popular these songs are. It's possible for a record like Mariah Carey's to aggregate enough data in a very short amount of time to get all the way to number one. Can I just say, I don't care that much about this song. It's a fine song. Yay, Mariah. Like, I, I see why it is a charming Christmas song. And um, I see why the idea of a song that old hitting number one for the first time is exciting. But to me, what is so exciting is charts that actually don't prize novelty and the measure what people are really listening to. Like, people do not experience culture the way culture journalists think they do, which is like only wanting to know about the new stuff and caring about it. And, you know, there's such a temptation to prize that. And it's just so fun that like, yeah. People don't really want your new album drop. They just want to put on Christmas music. And here's the one that's just an all-time great. Like, I love that. I love the changes that they've made in measurement and what they can teach us about what humans are actually doing with their ears at any given time. I think it's, like, radical and exciting and fantastic. I agree. Mostly, I enjoy this phenomenon. I find it fascinating that it's the same collection of decades-old chestnuts. It's it's not as if it's the Justin Bieber Christmas record, by the way, he's put out Christmas records, or the Ariana Grande Christmas record, she has two, that are topping the hit parade every year. Um, in fact, it's records like Burl Ives and Andy Williams and Bobby Helms and Eartha Kitt. And, you know, these are the records that people reach for year after year. But now we know just how much they are consumed year after year. That's one thought. The other thought is that what's interesting about the Hot 100, one reason I've always found it fascinating is it's what I call an average of two types of fandom. To your point, Julia, it measures both the extremely passionate fan, the sort of fan who will show up when a new Taylor Swift song or a new Drake song drops in its first week. And so sometimes you do get songs that debut at number one. But those are the people who are buying and streaming songs, right? But then it also still averages in good old-fashioned terrestrial radio, which is a very passive medium. And that's a useful metric because you're you're measuring both the songs people are consuming passively and the songs they're consuming actively. And when you average those two things together, you get a pretty accurate barometer of how popular songs are. Um, I still follow the Hot 100 because I find this fascinating because I think that there are songs that take a while to worm their way into people's consciousness and there are songs that sort of have a big impact early and then fade out quickly. And I think that they both need to share space on any reasonable measure of popularity. I, I feel like, Chris, before you go, there's just one other act of reverse engineering we have to do here, which is um, why this particular song insinuates itself so deeply into one's, I don't know, consciousness or bloodstream or unconsciousness or, you know, who knows, um, sternum or it just kind of gets into you in some way. And actually Slate ran a piece a few years ago that was very good about the musical architecture of it, that it's not built around the classic three to five chord structure of a rock and roll song, but built around interesting harmonics and chromatics. Like particularly, I loved this um, thing. The song also includes the most Christmassy chord of all, a minor subdominant or four chord with an added sixth under the words underneath the Christmas tree. Just as a composition itself, it is a series of Pavlovian 
um, Yuletide triggers? Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. In your intro, you pointed to the Motownness of All I Want for Christmas is You. I'd say some of that's in there, but what I'd say is even stronger in All I Want for Christmas is You is the Phil Spectorness. Um, to yeah. me, the song is a very clear homage to A Christmas Gift for You, that classic 1963 album which features the Ronettes, um, Darlene Love. Uh, in fact, on the Merry Christmas album in 1994, Mariah Carey, as if making this connection plain, also covers Christmas Baby Please Come Home by Darlene Love. It's clear that she had that mode on the brain. Um, and, you know, to give Mariah Carey her propers, she co-wrote this song with her then producer collaborator, Walter Afanasieff. Um, she's a songwriter. She's not just a singer. And um, she has an innate gift for melody. Um, she had a hand in writing, I think, all but one of her uh, now 19 number one hits. She's one away from the Beatles, by the way. Um, the only one she didn't uh, write or co-write is uh, I'll Be There, which was a cover of a Jackson 5 song. The other 18, she had a hand in, in at least arranging, if not writing the melody. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of this sturdy classic melody that um, evokes Christmas. And I think manages to sound instantly nostalgic um, on impact, both the way it's arranged and, again, to your point, the chromatic chords it uses. Um, it just sounded like, you know, an instantly familiar song from the very first time people heard it. And I don't know. I, those are the kinds of songs that endure. So when you think about these, like, 60-year-old records, the Brenda Lee's and Burl Ives's that come back every year. And you think about this 25 year old record, they're kind of of a piece with each other. So for me as a chart nerd, it just reminds me never count out Mariah Carey because we're two weeks from the end of the year. We're two weeks from the end of the 2010s. She hasn't had a number one hit in 11 years. And here she is with her 19th number one hit. So go figure. All right. Well, Chris, it's just always such a pleasure to have your uh, chart nerd self back on our show. Thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure, Steve. Okay, for those of our listeners who don't know, a Peloton, as I understand it, is a stationary bike. It's got a screen mounted on the bars, and via some kind of a subscription, you link up to a spin instruction class. I think it's pretty expensive. I think it's about $2,500 plus whatever you're paying to stay connected to it. The gift that gives back is uh, an ad for said Peloton. It features a yuppie husband giving his already stick-thin wife a Peloton for Christmas. And the next 30 seconds uh, has been described as an absolute horror show. Uh, this woman works her anxious ass off trying to get even thinner for her husband. And it turns out at the end of the ad, the twist is... Um, she's been making a kind of video diary of her progress on this device, which she then gives to her husband for Christmas one year later. Okay, you ready? Yes! Now... Peloton? Give it up for our first time riding. All right, first ride. I'm a little nervous, but excited. Let's do this. Five days in a row. You surprised? I am. 6 a.m. Yay. Rising with the sun. That was totally worth it. Let's go, Grace and Boston. 50 rides. She just said my name. A year ago, I didn't realize how much this would change me. Thank you. This holiday, give the gift of Peloton. Julia, I do not think you have to be Andrea Dworkin to find this thing an absolute horror show. It sent Twitter on fire and Peloton stock tanking. What did uh, what did you make of it? 
Well, I I was affected by just how much Twitter vitriol I had read about it. I'd had a busy day, and it was Peloton this, Peloton woman that. Oh, poor woman, free Peloton lady. But uh, you know, like all the little murmur of a internet happening was murmuring in my ear. And so before I went to bed, I, I was about to shut down the old laptop, and I was like, wait a minute, let me see what this Peloton hullabaloo is all about. And I watched it. And it was a bad ad, but I've, I I wish I'd heard nothing about it before I watched it because it was not quite as horrifying as I thought, in part because it's just confusing. Like, it's bad, and she does seem like a hostage in her own home, and her, like, rigid, chipper thinness that only gets more rigid and more chipper as she desperately pedals morning after morning, like, is just so miscalculated that all of the internet response is hilarious and apt. But... My primary response was just of confusion. Like, I think your summary of the ad is correct. She's making him a video diary to give him. But it sort of seems like she's a vlogger. Like, you you don't understand what all these video clips are and, like, who she's making the video for. So it's like she's, already, she's a YouTube influencer and she's telling us all. Like, just what, why... I, videoing myself while working out is not something I would ever intend to do. The whole thing is just... It's truly bad, and it's slightly rare to see marketing that's just badly executed, badly conceived marketing. We see that all the time, but just marketing that's not in control of its pitches at all. I mean, the last one I can think of is that amazing Pepsi ad where one of the Jenners like leads a street revolution in the, with the spirit of Pepsi or something. Remember that one? Yeah, yeah of course. Like the last time we all had so much fun really hating an ad together. It's, it's a great American tradition. Julia, I tend to agree. I don't think this ad is anywhere near as obviously blatantly offensive and bizarre as that Kendall or Kylie or whichever Jenner it was ad. Sorry, I don't know my Kardashians apart very well. This internet brouhaha totally blew by me. And so then when we were talking about this ad and I went to watch it, okay, we're talking about an ad on the Gabfest. I will go watch it. That was my history of the Peloton ad. And I honestly didn't see why it was so offensive the first time. It wasn't until I started to read people's responses to it and watch it with the eye of an ad critical person that I saw the the hostage video elements that so many people have, have spotted in it. And uh, I honestly think that a lot of it is centered in how con- confusing the perspective of the ad is, like who who are we looking at and who is it for, right? Because the husband figure who looms over this ad as this powerful yet almost invisible presence uh, is you see him only from the back at the beginning, right? So you're sort of seeing her through his point of view. And then, of course, at the end, you discovered that the whole time you've been watching a bunch of videos that she was making to present to him the following Christmas. So his Christmas present is a thank you video for the expensive Christmas present he got for her the year before. And as you say, because she seems so housebound and you only see her at home in workout clothes, you have this idea that she's a non-working wife, right? I mean, that's all stuff that you have to read into it. But the scenario, I think, that people projected on this ad and that it somewhat asks to have projected upon it, although to me it didn't jump out on first viewing, is that she's kind of a the trophy wife of a very well-off man who buys her this workout bike, which we're maybe assuming implies that she needs to get in shape, but she's already incredibly in shape. I would also hazard that if she were not in shape at the beginning and more so at the end, that would also be read as sexist. So the the ad is sort of stuck on that point, right? I mean, showing a woman working out for her husband has has that kind of angle, no matter what she looks like in the first place. Um, And then there's the actress herself. I saw this actress whose name is Monica Ruiz, who plays the Peloton biker, interviewed on the Today Show. and, uh, And it was quite interesting that she 
kind of took it on herself as to why this ad had had gone viral in such a negative way and was kind of laughing about it, but was also saying, you know what, I think it's my face and that my my worried eyebrows and anxious expression were telegraphing something that I shouldn't have been telegraphing. So interestingly, first of all, here's the woman in the ad about body policing, policing her own expressions while recording the ad. But in a way, <laughs> she's sort of right. And then I watched it again with that in mind, with thinking about, you know, just what this commercial actress is bringing to the performance. And it's true, in a way, she's almost overqualified for the job because she's bringing all these emotional tonalities that shouldn't be there. I think she should probably just have a robotic, happy Stepford smile at all times, and maybe this would wash <laughs> off our back as as your basic sort of standard level sexist ad. But because she has this vibe of sort of wanting to please and desperately looking at her husband as he's watching the video to see if he's happy about the workout she's been doing for a year on the bike he gave her, you do kind of come out of it feeling, you know, that that she's really been through something. I don't know. I mean, the most entertaining thing to me about the whole scandal is essentially that it's kind of an adventure in reading and the way people read and overread and read into things, which is, of course, my job to overread into things. But since I don't usually do it with, you know, stationary bike ads, it was it was great to see the the firepower that the Internet brought to analyzing this little piece of ephemera. All right. So stipulated there is no way to make an ad featuring a husband giving his wife an object or service to make her more in shape that is not grotesquely sexist. I mean, what what I think is great about both of your responses, there's just no way to play it. If she starts out sort of out of shape at the beginning of the ad and ends up, you know, in better shape at the end of it, that's grotesque. I mean, there's just no... There's no way to thread that that needle, basically. And um, the pull quote to me in the ad is, I didn't realize how much this would change me. And because she's a pretty good actress, <laughs> she gives some depth of feeling to that. And you're like, <laughs> something's really amiss in that marriage. I mean, um, right? I mean, because that's the other needle that can't be thread. I mean, if she's a human being with actual feelings and tonalities, her reaction to this machine is going to seem disproportionate. And if she's a Stepford wife, it's going to seem uncanny and horrifying. So, Julia, there was just no way for Peloton. To, this this <laughs> no, premise... No, this could, is, you guys are issuing the challenge, and it's making the editor and me want to figure out how this ad could have basically had this premise but not sucked. And I, I have a proposal. Um, but I think in the, by way of getting to the proposal, I would... I hadn't thought about the point you made, Dana, about perspective and like, who is this ad to? And that's part of what makes it land so sourly. The ostensible viewer is a husband who's like, what am I going to get the wife this year? Man, oh man, Christmas shopping sure is tough. And then you're in this kind of like imagined fantasy of a guy like, well, I know what would be great if this happened. And you're like, what? (laughs) What guy? (laughs) Thinking about what to give his female partner wishes for this like frenetic, (laughs) frenetic, crazed, anxious sadness. So I feel like the version of the ad you do is you uh, have the woman get like a succession of gifts from other people that she like gives the fake smile to, which I think this woman would be good at performing. Like, oh, thank you, because ah, she seems so fake anyway. In in I think you guys are right in her deeply realized performance. And then you see what she's actually doing is like saving up her own pennies because what she really wants for herself, you know, because whatever exercise is good, like wanting to exercise isn't always about your body being different. Sometimes it's just about health and aging better and whatever. Like we don't have to shame people for wanting to exercise. Exercise is great. So maybe she secretly is yearning for and saving up for 
envious of her friends who have the Peloton. And then the guy cottons on that what she really wants is the Peloton. And then he gives her one and she's happy. And that's the end of the ad. And there's no video next year. The only problem with that is that it signifies that the Peloton is overpriced because she's saving up her pennies for it. (laughs) But I agree. If there's some sense that she herself has had a dream realized by getting this unexpected gift. And so you would completely cut, obviously, the idea of her making a movie of herself working out for her husband. I mean, that's the high concept part of the ad, right? And so you think that that perspective needs to be lifted out entirely for it to make Well, I sense. guess I've also just proposed like a K-jewelry ad, which is not the most innovative form and we wouldn't all be talking about it. So uh, never mind. I also wonder how many, like the truly cynical person, and I'm surprised Steve hadn't said this yet, would say... This was all on purpose. Now we're all talking about the ad. Peloton, Peloton, Peloton. What should I get my fitness crazed wife? You know, (laughs) I know their stock dropped, so probably it was not intentional. But does any part of you think this was all a a scam and a scheme? I don't know. That's That's a very good question. I mean, Peloton did respond with some sort of very bland statement about we're sorry that people have misinterpreted our ad. So it seems that they... They're probably embarrassed about the controversy and obviously not happy about the stock dropping as a result it seems too scheming for them to have created something so insidious on purpose. I feel like it only could have happened on accident. I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Steve? Oh, on the, in the, you know, seventies paranoid thriller playing endlessly on loop in my brain. If you're that <laughs> cynical and conniving, um, you're good at it. You can't both be <laughs> the Ma- Machiavellian overlord and fuck it up totally and tank your stock price. I mean, I think the takeaway here is there's just simply no way to craft an ad like that whose intended target are husbands wondering what to get their wives for Christmas. For the underlying truth that no person ought to get their partner a physical fitness related gift. It's likely to get thrown back into your gender nonspecific face. Um, I, I kind of disagree with that. I think it's very situation really? specific. I mean, I wouldn't want one of those bikes because it would take up one quarter of our apartment. But I can completely see how within the context of a relationship, you know, say your partner is depressed and can't get out of the house. I mean, there's lots of situations where an inside exercise machine of some kind might be an appropriate gift. But I think you can't just generically frame it in that way. I think you're right. You can't just say commercial pretty lady gets bike from commercial pretty guy and it be- it starts off her, her spiritual journey. It just rings false and and a little bit creepy. Yeah, Monica Ruiz, the actress at the center of all this, just seems incredibly savvy. Like, I feel like this will launch a proper career. I mean, I don't know whose idea it was that Ryan Reynolds' gin, I think it's called Aviation or Aviator Gin, um, should do like an ad basically just mocking somebody else's marketing fail, which they managed to spin up and put online within, I think, 48 hours of the whole thing going viral, in which Monica Ruiz you know, sits with two gal pals at a bar and they, one of them says, it's okay, we're here. And the other one says, we're here all night. And then they are served martinis and she downs one and then she downs her friends or yeah, I'm not quoting it verbatim, but anyway, the, the, like the notion that she's finally been freed by internet opprobrium from the prison of her glassy, loveless, desperate to please marriage. And now it's just relaxing with Ryan Reynolds is June. It just seemed extremely 2019. Okay. Well, I mean, this is one that we really would love listener reaction to. Did the hive mind go into overdrive and overread this thing? Or did uh, corporate America not get away with a whopping act of uh, sub Orwellian bullshit? We would love to hear from, uh, from you guys on this one. All right, moving on. All right. Now's the moment in our podcast when we endorse. Dana, what do you have? 
Uh, Stephen, I'm going to endorse an album that uh, I listen to every year around the holidays, even though it's not a holiday album. Since we talked about Mariah Carey and uh, and Christmas songs, I thought this was appropriate, even though it's the week before our official Christmas show. And it's possible that I've endorsed this or something by this artist before on the Gabfest, but if so, it was many, many years ago, so I feel perfectly safe in returning to it again. Um, and I'm going to make you guess, Steve, because you're the jazz sort of knower on the podcast. Who do you think that my favorite trumpeter might be my favorite jazz trumpeter somebody who's a little bit under the radar not the most obvious name to come to mind uh well okay so the obvious one would be miles so it's obviously not that you know pretty obvious one would be clifford brown and a less obvious one would be lee morgan it's the pretty obvious one. <laughs> I thought it was more obscure. It's Clifford Brown. <laughs> yeah, no, there's so many great jazz trumpeters. And uh, and I think people know, of course, Miles and, and Chet Baker and Dizzy Gillespie. But I don't hear people talking as much about Clifford Brown. And he's just one of those oh, he's great, great American artists. And his trumpet yep. has a particular warm, just a cozy sound that I associate with the holiday season somehow. Um and also maybe because he died at the age of 25 in a car accident, there's something about his work that has just this incredible poignancy and melancholy to it because he was just getting started. So the album I was going to endorse as my sort of quasi Christmas album is called Study in Brown. And it's an album mm-hmm. of mostly originals that he did with Max Roach, the great jazz drummer. And it's just one of those perfect. I mean, to me, it's as perfect as Miles Davis's Kind of Blue. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's less groundbreaking yes. or whatever. I'm sure if I was a jazz historian, I would know why Kind of Blue holds a higher place in the jazz pantheon but i love studying brown every bit as much and uh just every song on it flows perfectly into the next to me it's one of those albums that you have to listen to beginning to end because it's a complete emotional experience and uh i don't have anything else to say about it but that just clifford brown studying brown um you know i probably only put on a jazz record and listen to it beginning to end on purpose as opposed to just putting on some jazz on spotify or something a few times a year and this album is almost always in the rotation he is probably he's my favorite jazz trumpet player too dan and I really agree. And I think he's he's uh-huh. just one of the truly greats. I mean, him, Clifford Brown with strings. Uh, I think he made a re- record with Billie Holiday that's for just forever. These are eternal contributions uh, to the old canon. Um, Julia, what do you got? All right, guys. Sorry, Dana. Sorry, Kothi. But thanks to this thing I'm about to tell you about that happened in the last two weeks, I am the best mom alive. And I will accept no challengers. Uh, We did a Christmas tree. We are raising our kids Jewish, but why not have a Christmas tree? That kind of Jewish. We didn't bring all the ornaments out here. Mom fail. I went to CVS to get new ornaments. Kind of a mom fail. They're ugly. I forgot or somehow failed to realize that the hooks don't come with the ornaments. They're in a different box. Buy hooks separately. What the fuck is that bullshit? Had to go back to CVS to get the hooks, which I had forgotten. And upon the return visit, what? To my wondering eye should appear in the Christmas seasonal aisle of CVS, but the clapper. Did you guys watch ads for the clapper when you were little? Oh, is it the light that you clap on and off? Yeah. You you go, you know, and then the lights go on and then you do it again mm-hmm. and the lights go yep. off. The, those appeared like, on TV when I was 30, but yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we were all kids. Um, and I remember watching those ads as a child and just being like, whoa, like the height of technology. 
the height of indolence and luxury. Like, I, <laughs> it is kind I of wanted... telekinesis, really. Yeah, no, it felt like magic, like bending spoons with your mind. And of course, I did not. I was not raised in a home where you were going to get the clapper. I had no idea how much it cost. I thought it was like a hundreds of dollar piece of equipment because you couldn't just freaking talk to your phone and tell it to Google something for you, you know, in 1990, whatever the hell I was seeing that ad. Um, so anyway, the clapper, guess how much the clapper costs? Four bucks. Nineteen ninety nine. Very affordable addition to the old Christmas retinue. Now that we're setting up a, a, a West Coast kit, plugged my Christmas tree into the clapper. Guess how we turn on the Christmas tree lights? I, I gotta say that is genius. <laughs> I mean, that is really that is genius. Wait, so the clapper is not a light in itself? It's a thing that you can channel any light through. You can put anything electric through. You could put your fucking blender on the clapper. Oh my god, the clapper is a concept. I need. Dana, you left a billion just... dollars. You left a billion dollars on the table when you didn't go to Silicon Valley. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> I thought it was an individual light that you clapped on and off. Wow. The Peloton guy should hear about this. He could get his wife a clapper instead. (laughs) You could probably put the Peloton on the clapper and then he could (laughs) clap her routines in time. Anyway, I just... But could you put the Peloton wife on the clapper? (laughs) That was part of what it seemed like you might be able to do. (laughs) Anyway... Deep, hearty, extreme recommendation for the clapper. Like just, it will instill delight in your home. People come over, the kids rush to demonstrate it. People try to see if they can turn it on and off with stomping. It like works pretty well. You have to, you know, you have to clap kind of in the right register. Like if you do a feeble, sad clap, no go. It has to have like a little bit of that like cup to it. Um, but oof. It's the greatest. I'm the best. I win the clapper. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, whatever we're charging for this podcast, it's not enough. That's all I have to say. <laughs> all right. Well, I uh, every now and then, I think maybe about once every six months, twice a year, I pound the table. I'm pounding the table on this one. Uh, I just saw a movie that I should disclose. A friend of mine produced and co-wrote. I think that's one of the reasons I sort of delayed watching it. It just was, it was like in one pile of obligations and not another, you know, it's like the things I have to watch and consume for the show, the books I need to read for my book and the research I need to do for my whatevers. And then there's the stuff that my friends make. And um, uh, I, I now regret having waited so long to see the best worst thing that ever could have happened. The documentary from 2016 about the um, Sondheim musical bomb, the incredible bomb, the biggest bomb of Sondheim's career. Merrily we roll along. Dana, have you seen that movie? No, that sounds fantastic. It's a documentary about it? Yes. It oh, is God. I'm so... watching that with my Sondheim head daughter. I can't wait. Oh, my God. So the basic premise is in 19... 19- so Sondheim and Hal Prince, their partnership you know, they go through company, follies, little night music, whatever. They are the sort of slightly esoteric darlings reviving musical theater in the 1970s. And then in 1979, it hits this orgiastic summa with Sweeney Todd, which is regarded at the time as an absolute, like Hamilton, an absolute breakthrough in the form, super dark subject matter, really complex music, mostly sung through and, um, and super intense staging by Hal Prince. And it's just a, regarded as a total masterpiece, right? His follow-up to that is a musical called Merrily We Roll Along that uh, lasts for 16 performances, closes in total shame, and Hal Prince and Stephen Sondheim never work together again, right? Among the problems with the musical, arguably, was that it was a, it was a cast of children playing adults. So the cast was, was made up entirely of kids playing grown-ups who were then moving through their life backwards. 
Whoa, Bugsy Malone in musical form. Right. So they start as middle-aged people looking back on their on their semi-failed lives regretfully, and then they become younger as the musical goes along. So it had a very high concept. There were, tw- I think, roughly 20 of them in the cast. Of them, about five or six had fairly considerable career, went on to considerable careers in show business. So um, one of whom was Jason Alexander. And then there are five who have huge regrets about the experience, feel like it derailed their life, and then everyone else is in between. So the movie essentially began as an attempt simply to interview people about, the, including Sondheim and Hal Prince, extensively about the experience and what it meant to each one of them and, and why. Um, they knew that someone had been shooting a documentary contemporaneously and that there were thousands of hours of candid footage of the making of it, but they couldn't track it down until they'd shot their documentary and then they suddenly found it and had access to it. So A, as a historic document, it's astonishing because you see Hal Prince and um, Sondheim making a musical together uh, and and uh, from the beginning, like just the camera is in the fucking room for the auditions, for the whole process. It's That in and of itself is riveting. But then the fact that the film is itself about aging, time, regret, and where things go wrong, which is in fact what the musical itself was about, so that the theme of the musical and the film feed back onto one another in this remarkable way. It's an incredible document. I mean, it's an incredibly moving thing to see. It's just so fascinating to talk to these people now in mid to later life about what this experience meant to them, um, how foundational it was. And it's just historic. It's like, it's these arguably the greatest director, composer, partnership in in the history of the form you know reflecting on what what the fuck happened to them and their lives vis-a-vis one another it's on netflix and then it's just moving i mean it's an incredibly moving film i mean by the end of it you are completely taken up by and then the afterlife of the musical which has become a kind of classic i cannot recommend it highly enough it's a really accomplished documentary can you say the title one more time because it's kind of long Yes, it is the best worst thing that ever could have happened. And it's on Netflix. Uh, check it out. It's it's really cool. That sounds amazing. I'm completely watching that probably before we talk again. Uh, excellent. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. I don't want a lot for Christmas. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culture fest. We love it. I say it every week. I really mean it. We love it when you email us at culturefest at slate.com. You can interact with some of us on Twitter. That's uh, at slate cult fest. Our producer is Katya Komkova. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us and we will see you soon. <laughs>